You are listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership to inspire team captains to lead their teams more effectively and help coaches to systematically develop and use them. Now, here's your co-host, Luke Poulos. Welcome to the Captain's Coach Podcast, coming at you with another conversation as a part of our sports philosophy series today with my guest, Dr. Michael Burke. Dr. Burke is a senior lecturer at Victoria University in Australia. He specializes in philosophy of sport and has a very pragmatic approach in his work. He is a member of both the International Sociology of Sport Association and the International Association for Philosophy of Sport. During our conversation today, we talk about a variety of things, but focus on the purpose of sport and a coach's role in that purpose, how to develop a coaching philosophy, some of the shortfalls in sports philosophy, as well as common pitfalls of coaches. Just like the rest of my conversations during this series, this one was so interesting to me and opened up some more thought pathways that I otherwise wouldn't encounter. If you want to learn more about Dr. War- Dr. Burke or his work, please visit vu.edu.au and look for his name on their website. Without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michael Burke on another episode of the Captain's Coach Podcast. Hey, Dr. Burke. Uh, I guess I should say good morning to you. Uh, I got an evening over here, but Regardless, thank you so much for making some time and, and coming on the Captain's Coach Podcast. No problem, Luke. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and um, if you didn't catch it in the intro, Dr. Burke is coming all the way from Australia, gracing us with his his wisdom in the sport philosophy realm today. And all this philosophy that we started, you being the fifth guest, um, I'm not going to be surprised if we get a fifth different answer, but what do you believe is the purpose of sport? Well, Luke, I'm actually um, just in the process of writing up a paper at the moment, which goes back to the Bernard Suits idea of the notion of a game and its relationship to sport. And I'm actually taking the perspective that sport's an opportunity um, for people to you know, experience and express creativity in physical activity. Um, so my, my next paper that I'm writing at the moment is looking at how coaches can actually interfere with that opportunity to express creativity. Uh, so I would suggest that the purpose of sport is, um, you know, very much a, a free realm where people are separated from, I guess, normal working life and have the opportunity just to express themselves. Right, so almost a not purely individually individual focused, but primarily individually focused purpose of letting go lives and just an outlet for, like you said, that, that creativity aspect. Is that kind of what you're, what you're getting at? Yes, but still, still a competitive um, experience, you know, in most situations, though not in all situations. So there's still an element of, of, um, 
you know, workplace action there, if you like, and certainly for professional sports, it is their workplace. But I, I think we should never shy away from the importance of, uh, you know, seeing it as an expression of, of something, something further or, or, or doing something better than, than has ever been done before. And I don't think we can record that in wins and losses. Right. So it, and that's, a, that's a great point and something that has been brought up in the past couple of episodes. Wins and losses aren't the most important thing. And if that is the most important thing to you as a coach, you're going to lose sight on the actual purpose of sport and, and what your athletes are actually there to accomplish. And they, you know, in turn might actually start to believe that same what you know with that being said are there any other useful ways that you've come across to kind of measure success outside of the wins and losses oh absolutely you know i'm a, I'm a practicing coach i've been a coach for 30 years um you know at both community level and and slightly higher than community level at a representative level in melbourne australia um my measurement of success is player retention and, and player happiness and, and whether I serve, I, I'm in a service, in a human service role as a coach and whether I serve the goals that the athletes want to achieve. I came to this pretty late. I mean, you know, I was 20 years of being a, a, a sort of authoritarian coach where I, you know, I, I directed the players and I, I, I managed the players. And, you know, after about 20 years and a, and a particularly um, eye-opening, um, communication from my daughter who I was coaching at the time, I decided the coaching wasn't about me anymore. It was about serving my players' goals. And so, so that changed my orientation. So if I was to measure success as a coach, I'd measure it in terms of retention of players. I'd measure it in terms of happiness and joy experienced by players. I'd measure it in terms of educational goals experienced by players. So there are plenty of other measures that we can use rather than win-loss records. Right. And then the, I feel like a, an initial pushback from anybody out there with a more win-loss success centric and back with, oh, well, you know, would you, instead of having a team that's happy and all of those things you just mentioned are at a high level, but loses every game in the season. My, my initial comeback to that would, mm. would very easily be well if your team was losing every single game you're you're not going to have player retention and player happiness is there anything else you would you would say kind of in a rebuttal to that yeah i'd I'd say a couple of things number one i'd say context is critically important right all right so if i'm a if i'm a professional coach coaching at i you know either professional sport or in the ncaa system for instance i have demands on me that means that still mean I have to negotiate that notion of human service very carefully. So I understand context, all right? And I have been in situations where I've had great pressure put on me by the club, clubs that I've coached with to start winning or to keep winning or to make finals or to win championships. So I understand context entirely. But within a context, it still involves communication with your players about what they see as important. Now, the difficult thing is when you're coaching a team of, you know, in a team sport, I coach a lot of basketball. I've got 10 players on my roster. Five players want to win the championship and the other five players just want an opportunity to get on the court. 
that's where the negotiation comes through. That's where you have, but, but still the negotiation is oriented by that notion of a human service ethic. Right, no, I completely agree with that. And I, th I think you're right, the, the context is important. You can't, you can't have this conversation without bringing in that entire context. Um, Having said that, Luke, I, yeah, think go it's ahead. Really, I think it's really important, even at the NCAA level, and perhaps even at the professional level, to be open in the, in the, in the type of orientation you're going to take as a coach. Um, you know, players are very vulnerable. Co coaches have a whole lot of power. They, they sit above this whole field. Um, they determine court time. They determine, you know, probably have some say in salaries and things like that. But coaches have a whole lot of power. Um, athletes need information before they make decisions about, you know, which team they're going to play with or are they going to fit with this coach. So I even think at the NCAA level, I'd really respect coaches who go into any negotiation with the player with, with complete honesty and openness. And, and you know, I, I'm probably more, more worried about a system or an organisational rule that prevents players from changing their mind or, or limits, the, limits the opportunity for players to express their own, own mind. Right. And that, I completely agree with you there as well. And that kind of comes back to your whole philosophy of what is the purpose of sport. It's, it's that somewhat individual goal of expression, creativity, doing something not for the sake of winning or losing, but kind of this, this release and this individualistic kind of mindset within this team context and this competition context. And if you're an organization that inherently limits that purpose from a very base level, you're, you're kind of going in the face of everything that sport is designed for or the purpose of sport really is for. And I know you've done some work on the informed consent model that you have. Is that all kind of tied into what you're talking, talking about right now? Yeah, definitely. That, that, that's sort of, look, most of my coaching philosophy is stolen from some, some excellent researchers. And that, that was an idea that came out of, and this has shown my age, that came out of the mid 80s. Um, a couple of sports philosophers, um, Revisa and Durati, put put forward this this informed consent model of coaching, and and you know I thought about it for a long time, and it didn't really influence my early practice of coaching. But subse subsequently, enough after a lot of reflection on how I coach, and especially on how many great kids that I have turned off the sport that I coach in by you know, being over the top or being authoritarian or yelling too much or doing things like that. I began to think of that as a really pragmatic model of coaching and a really great model to open up two-way communication with players, to open up compromise, to make players more adult-like in their decision. So not simply obedient to me, but um, you know, in a relationship with me that's more adult-like. Now, once you make a player more adult-like and more independent, you also make them um, more protected from exploitation. All right, and one of the th one of the themes that has gone through, you know, a lot of my teaching and a lot of my research, and now into my coaching, is the 
the opportunity for exploitation of players in the sporting world. And so I think as coaches, we have to work out ways of making sure that players are non-exploitable. And, you know, that informed consent model really works for me, that we, uh, right at the start of the season, we set up a communication process, we, we, we talk about my coaching philosophy, their playing goals, and how we can get those two things closer together. Yeah, and I think that's great. And obviously communication, like you said right there at the end, um, you know, that's the key. And that's a big piece of leadership. That's one of the ways the captain's coaches is focused on communication. You know, most of the time we're talking about the captain's responsibility when it comes to the communication. But that that exact conversation that you're talking about, you know, what is the team's goals? What are the individual goals? What is the coach's goals? What is the what is the culture here? What do we want the culture to look like? Yeah. A month from now, a year from now, five years from now. What's the legacy we want to leave behind? And as a coach, that's why it's so important not just be flying by the seat of your pants and saying, hey, I want to win some games, win some matches this season, is what is my philosophy, what is my role, and what is my goal for my athletes? And what are their goals? What, yeah. what, what tips or – strategies or kind of I guess exercises that you quite Luke, fully you just broke their up there. sorry Luke you just broke up there really badly so you're asking for tips and strategies is that yeah right? tips tips and strategies for coaches who may not have their coaching philosophy fully developed any exercises they can go through or or maybe a coach who's realized their philosophy isn't working and they want to change it up. What would you say to a coach in either of those situations? Um, all right, I'll, I'll make a couple of um, claims. Number one, the best thing for my philosophy, for, for how I developed my philosophy was, as I said, one or two eye-opening experiences where I did I reflected back and realized that I'd been I'd been directing players in a very poor way. So, you know, at one stage I was coaching in a community club setting. I was going off my tree at a referee and was not behaving in any sort of a way that could be associated with being a role model. And a, a sort of a, an official at the club walked up to me and said, do you really think that's a good, good image to show to, to the people you coach? And from that moment on, you know, eye-opening experience that changed part of my coaching philosophy toward, toward the way I behaved towards um, referees. As I said, my daughter had a go at the way I was coaching her at one stage, um, and that changed my so, – so that sort of eye-opening experience can help coaches to reflect on whether they're the problem and maybe not their players are the problem. <laughs> maybe the coach is the problem. Uh, the second thing is, you know, there are some great examples of, of just – what I call superb coaches in every sense of the word. Some have been successful. I, you know, I, I have as role models a couple of community coaches in Australia who have never won a final, never, never done anything like that, but whose who's obvious relationship, two-way communication relationship with their players is just outstanding. If I was to pick out, you know, an elite level coach who does that, you know, the, the quote you've got on your website by Greg Popovich, 
yeah. is a fantastic example of this notion of an informed consent model. Yep. You know, he says a player coach team is always going to be more successful than a coach coach team. So he works out on developing a culture where all these players feel included, where all these players buy in. And yes, he gets success out of that, but he also gets a culture where he just doesn't have to worry about conflict resolution. Right. <laughs> now, again, context is important here. Popovich has been amazingly successful. If he had a coach, you know, if he had a, done this in the first year of coaching when his team was right down the bottom, maybe he wouldn't have had the success that he has now. So context is important. But in terms of tips and strategies, look outside of yourself, seek role models, seek mentors. Um, and then the final tip and strategy I'd do is simply remember you're in a human service occupation. You're serving the goals of your players. Your players um, want to come and play the sport underneath you. They want to be coached by you. And the worst thing you can do is turn them off the sport. Right. So act with honesty, act with openness, act with care and sympathy. You know, it, it's sort of a lot of the things we talk about in feminist ethics. No, I love that entire kind of framework. Because um, I know there's definitely coaches out there that struggle with this and, mm. and are trying to put together the last couple pieces of it you know, especially younger coaches or, you know, athletes turned coaches now having to, to fight through the, the, the athlete on the field urges. And I think, I think you sum it up really nicely when it comes to the service aspect. And, and we say that in, in the captain's coach, when we're talking to captains as well, you know, leadership is a service. Um, mm. And it's, and I love this quote, um, almost as much or just as much as I love the, the Popovich quote um, that, and I forget where I got it, but I, one of my previous guests must've said it on the, on the show, but it was a, a leader without followers isn't a leader. He's just a guy walking and, and it's, and it works perfectly for a coach. Like if you're in it for yourself, you know, obviously you need a team, a coach without a team. Like you're not a coach. I don't know what you are at that point. Yeah. You're just a guy or a gal with a whistle and, you know, standing, standing on a grass field in a park looking crazy. So it really is about your players and what are you doing for them? And I, and I love how you put it about making them less exploitable and protecting them from exploitation, especially at the youth high school collegiate yeah. levels is protecting them from all these different distractions, all these different entities and organizations and individuals that want to use them for their own purposes. And if you can make them more resilient, less exploitable, while maintaining the context of your relationship, I mean, that's, like you said, that, that's, that's really the end goal right there. Yeah, Luke, and the other thing I've found, and I, I don't want to underplay, I take coaching very seriously. I think it's a, it's like teaching, it's a, it's a truly noble occupation, all right? So I, I and I, when I coach, I'm trying to win, but I'm not going to sacrifice everything for the win, and I'm not trying to make out like I'm a special person or anything like that. It simply made me more joyful in my coaching when I, when I engaged with players, 
on a reasonably even level. I understood I still had the power, but I engaged in a reasonably even level. And it just made it a more joyful experience. You know, and, yeah. and I didn't feel the stress that I used to feel when I was this authoritarian coach who was screaming from the bench, and, you know, demanding and doing all that sort of stuff. It was just more joyful. Now, maybe that's with age, becoming a parent, that I, I understood joy, joy then. Um, but honestly, it's, it's been a, a life-shattering change for me. No, and that's great to hear. And, I, and yeah, you know, I, th I don't think it is an age thing. I think it's just as time goes by, we have more experiences that we can reflect on that give us perspective. Um, and I think if you have the ability to gain that perspective, you, age isn't necessarily a, a prerequisite. And so many of us wish we could have that perspective and those experiences earlier in life. So we could stop <laughs> stressing and having those, those negative outlooks for sure. Uh, but it makes complete sense, right? If if winning and losing is the only thing you're focusing on and you're not winning, then, you know, something that, you know, depending on the sport, only so much of that you can really control. You're depending on children, kids, young adults mm. to give you a result that is out of your hands once the whistle blows. Yeah. Or you can focus on your relationships, on your team building on your culture on what you're doing for them which is completely in your control the lessons you're you're imparting on your athletes the the education you're giving them if that's what you're focusing on the winning and losing is important obviously but it becomes somewhat of a byproduct of everything else you're doing and the stress will alleviate because you're not depending on things that you have no control on you're you're only focus on what you do have control over yeah luke i feel bad because i've taken it right away from philosophy but if i was to put a philosophical spin on it um again using bernard suits you know wonderful book I, i'd talk about you know trying to promote being a grasshopper rather than being an ant so a grasshopper is concerned with the here and now they're concerned with the joy of living an ant is concerned with what happens down the track so you know, as a coach, the best thing I can do is help people to experience joy through their, you know, through the here and now of playing sports. And as a youth coach, I think it's a really, like I said, a noble goal and a, and a really important goal because soon those, those kids and adolescents are going to turn into adults and they're going to have a whole lot of stress on them. So mm -hmm. if they can have a good 15 years where they're playing ch children's and youth sport, and not feel like they're under pressure the whole time, then that's something that's positive. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the stress is going to come inherently at some point. So yeah. as a coach, the longer you can put that off for athletes, keep them engaged in purely for the love of the sport, love of the game that they're playing. I mean, that's got to be, that's got to be goal number one. Like you said earlier, you know, goal number one should be don't put your athletes off from the sport. Don't, yeah. don't get them turned off and hate the sport because of some pseudo philosophy you've come up with and, and forced down their throats. So out, outside of that, Mike, what other things do you see coaches kind of, uh, kind of coaches gone wrong, um, so to speak, or, or pitfalls that you see 
maybe not even just with coaches, but but pitfalls you see coaches and athletes both kind of fall into, whether it be things they take for granted or um, some misconceptions about sport in general. Uh, yeah, Luke, I'll, I'll probably answer that in two separate ways. Okay. There, there are, you know, and I'll come back to that notion of, of athletes being vulnerable to exploitation and, you know, especially young athletes. Oh, and I probably shouldn't say young athletes, but yeah, athletes being vulnerable to exploitation. So the, so the first thing the coach, or one, one of the first problems I see with coaching, especially young young people's coaching, young, you know, young players, is that you may normalise behaviours which future coaches can exploit. Mm. So, you know, we, we have some examples of wonderful servants in our, in our sport of basketball in Australia who never aspire to be the first team coach or never aspire to be the, the national champion or anything like that. And their sole role is in introducing kids to the sport. So they take the six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds and they introduce them to the sport. And they are, they are you know, superb characters in coaching. They, they are the, the real coaches, all right? The trouble is if they engage in behaviours, either physical touch or communication behaviours, that normalise those things that allow later coaches to, to exploit. And that's one thing I've been very strong on, you know, more recently in, in both coach education and in the research I'm doing, is looking how the normalisation of behaviours that would never occur in the classroom or would right. never occur in the doctor's surgery um, become frequent in in sporting settings. So things like, um, you know, hugging your players, individual training sessions, unsupervised training sessions, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one training sessions. So, so in order to, I guess, protect players from exploitation, we have to also demonstrate to players that that's not normal behaviour. <laughs> you know, right. and and as coaches, we have to practice, you know, safeguarding. I guess, which is kind of a, a, a term that's come out of the the literature on harassment and abuse of athletes. We have to pr practice safeguarding in a way that reduces the risk of future exploitation. So that's the first sort of area. From a very young age. Kids have to, or, or children have to understand the areas that they can be exploited in, and coaches have to sort of practice in a way that doesn't normalise those types of ex potential exploitations. At the other end, when you're dealing with very, very elite athletes, and you're dealing in national championships or state titles or you know things like that, it is a constant form of self-reflection. Where you have to, where, where you have to constantly think. Yes, this is sport. This is important. This is critically important to the players. It may be the their sense of identity may be heavily invested in that, but at the same time, it is still a sport. It's it's still not, um, not a life threatening situation. It's not a not a not of extreme importance. And so you have to keep that balanced in what you do. And, you know, at the, at the elite level, and I have coached at, a, at an elite junior level in, in Australia, I've seen too many coaches that 
just get over overawed by the situation and and simply simply refuse to communicate in a in a normal adult way with young athletes with young people <laughs> we have to remember we're adults talking to children you have to communicate in certain ways so that's the two areas that i'd say are sort of you know pitfalls for coaching no i like that especially especially the the first one mike i i something that coaches probably don't think about and right like you like you said those coaches at that level they really are kind of the, the lifeblood of the sport bringing the youth into it creating that pool of of youth engagement and enthusiasm and love for the sport and they and they obviously you know the, the vast majority of them have no nefarious malicious no. intent at all and everything that they do in their interactions is 100% genuine yep but like you said it could be normalizing behavior that down the road and and I like that I just like how you the, the terminology here is exploitable normalizing behavior that could that could down the road become exploitable and yep. we're seeing more of it in the news now than ever, especially at the the high school and college level, how these relationships can turn bad and how, you know, we've come to accept where these relationships start and then it's a, you know, a slippery slope the rest of the way down. And yeah, and, and it will often be someone else that exploits. So, you know, it, yeah, it will often be someone else that exploits. And again, I'm, I'm stealing this from, you know, Celia Brackenridge and, and various authors who have written about, you know, athlete sexual abuse, sexual harassment, vilification, athlete harassment. And there's a, there's a group of, of researchers that have, that have um, researched in this area and have produced great risk analysis um, uh, articles for sporting organisations to use. And, and um, I'm very informed by that notion of what I'm doing today should not create vulnerability down the right. track for an athlete. You're right. No, I like that. That's a good, that's a good, a, um, you know, benchmark, just another, another question. And, and part of that self-reflection that you talk about as a coach and putting it in your tool bag is that's great. Am I, am I making them more vulnerable or am I making yeah. them less vulnerable is my recurring actions protecting them long-term or opening them up to harm long-term. Um, no, I love that. Is there... And, and Luke, as I said earlier, I was slow to this. I, I spent 20 years being a coach that, you know, on reflection, you know, won some, won some championships, won some games, but, but probably, you know, in two ways, caused some players to leave the sport and normalise some behaviours that I'm not proud of, you know, and you know, none of the nefarious stuff, but still, you know, normalize some behaviors that I, I wouldn't do anymore. So I was slow to get to here. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, coach education improves, and I know it is to the point where, where you know, young coaches get to this point very quickly. Right, right, right. And obviously, nobody's, nobody's perfect in the coaching world. And, and you know, we see the, the Greg Popovich's <laughs> of the world. And, you know, there's there's no way Greg Popovich has been Greg Popovich his entire coaching career. No. Um, no. You know, I read um, there's a famous basketball coach 
here in the States, he coached at the high school level, Morgan Wooten. And I actually yep. had him on the podcast um, uh, a, a while back now. Um, he's, he's since passed away, but uh, his book and just it taught him reading his transformation of coaching philosophy. It's just, you know, the grades weren't always great. And it's like you said, takes years of reflection and refining and learning from your mistakes because you know it's cliche but we learn far more from our failures and our shortcomings than we do from our victories and our successes so it's no surprise there um but yeah like you said you know the the faster you can get there the better um yeah which again kind of just goes in hand why we tell people to to take chances when you're young because oh yeah the worst thing that's going to happen is you fail and you learn a lesson from it. Yep. I'd also add that I'm not sure what it's like in America at the moment, but in Australia, you know, we have a major labor shortage. Um, so pretty much almost anyone can be a coach who's played the game. Um, and that, that might also create some problems. So we don't have, we, we probably don't have as strong a coach education program as you know certainly the NCAA does we probably don't have as strong a coach education program it's growing and it's improving and the people that are running it are fantastic and trying to develop you know packages that that include you know sort of ethics notions within coach education they're not just about x's and o's mm -hmm. so there's a lot of work being done there and there are a lot of you know even federal and state level legislation that's being put in place that that requires coaches to, to behave in certain ways, but it just is a, probably a few years behind where you're at in America, I'd say. But that's just a, a yeah, an and observation. It, yeah, and I would I would say here in the States, it's it's very sport and region dependent. Um, mm. Obviously at the college level, there's just so much that goes into screening um, coaches, but at, at a youth level, and a high school level, it really depends on the sport and, and kind of the area or the school district. Um, very localized, I would say. You know, you hear about awesome youth programs um, and you hear about horrible youth programs. And yeah. it does all kind of come down to the coaching. Um, you know, obviously when I, I was growing up um, playing lacrosse, I was lucky enough to have some some really awesome awesome coaches that you know I don't know if it was just fortunate good timing but they happen to be you know other other children my age used to just be their dads who coached the sport had a background in lacrosse and also just had really a, a really good mentality towards towards youth sports um, so I was lucky there but I can't speak for everywhere and I can't can't speak for for every sport but I'm sure like you said it's it's an area that uh, forever will continuously be be improved upon you know there's not ever going to be a final solution or someone with a perfect product um mm. running uh you know a little bit coming to our end here in dr burke but i wanted to ask you kind of the last main question of this this conversation um you know we talked a little bit before we started that you come from less of a theoretical conceptual background in philosophy and more of the the pragmatic pragmatist um, perspective or do you have any kind of pet peeves or things that you think are not exactly true or 
things that bother you maybe in the philosophy of sport world? Oh, golly. Um, that's an interesting question, Luke. Um, do you mean specifically around, you know, philosophy of sport coaching or do you mean in the philosophy of sport world? Yeah, in, in general. Yeah, either one. Yeah. Um, look, the, the f philosophy of sports society um, is a magnificent society. It's small, but it's it's open. It It's, you know, open to criticism. People are very giving in that society. So the society itself, you know, fantastic. Um, in, in the philosophy of sport world, I think probably my one pet, one of my main pet peeves um, is probably that like most of the humanities and social sciences, it's struggling to retain its place. I know this is true in Australia, but I'm, I'm fairly sure it's true over in America as well. It's struggling to re retain its place, its place within you know, sports science, sport coaching, sport kinesiology courses. And that, that is a P for me. And, and I'm fortunate. I did my undergraduate kinesiology degree at a university that was heavily influenced by a North American model. You know, virtually half the staff were either Canadians or, or Americans. Um, and so we had a, when I was doing my undergraduate course, we had a, a very close balance between the humanities and social sciences and what they can add to a, an investigation of sport and kinesiology and exercise and the biological science. My peeve at the moment is that the biological sciences, and it's not a us against them idea, but they just seem to be grabbing a greater share of the, of the coursework within undergraduate courses and postgraduate especially undergraduate courses. Now, the problem with that, as I see it, is that most of the occupations that, um, that our graduates will go into, like sport coaching, are human service occupations. Right. So what needs to be developed in our undergraduate students and, and furthered through our postgraduate students is the notion of service to others and the various very important, philosophically important tools that you need to be a good practitioner which includes both your underpinning philosophy or your underpinning orientation, and also those very practical skills that you might learn in a, you know, in a psychology subject or a sociology subject about um, communication skills, motivational skills, and from a sociological perspective, about the context that people live and, live and survive in. So that's my pet peeve is that Maybe philosophy and some of the other social sciences and humanities aren't valued enough in the areas that we're working in. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I, I wouldn't have, I don't think I ever would have come across that, that idea. Um, but it, it, as you lay it out, it becomes very apparent just that the, not, not necessarily polarization of the two but kind of the, the separation of hard mathematical type sciences, the biology, physiology, kinesiology, medicine, um, the, the hard science, provable science, tactics, if you will, mm. separating that from the softer science 
and the arts and the humanistic aspect. And like you said, both are extremely integral to the professions that these undergraduates are going to go into and to go into them with an imbalance or more of one than the other, or a, you know, more importantly with a lack of one of those, it's going to make for a less desirable outcome. Um, you know, if you have, if you have all the tactics and you understand the science, but you can't communicate and you don't understand why you're doing it, that's not going to be good for the people you're serving. And if all you do is focus on the philosophy of it and the arts and the communication, but you don't really understand what the sport is, it's not going to be enjoyable for your athletes either, or, or the, the people you're serving because they're not learning anything about the sport or the human body, or yeah. you're going to get hurt or, you know, it's, it's not, it's just not going to be fun. Um, no. So that's an interesting, and then, an interesting and, perspective and argument that I don't think I would have come up with. Um, but it makes perfect sense when you laid out. Yeah. And the point is not to say it's an either or it's a, both right. areas of both domains or areas of knowledge are, are critically important to professional practice. It's just that at, at the moment and for the last probably 15 years in Australia, and I'm not sure how, whether it occurs in America, it seems that one has gained dom dominance. And for obvious reasons, it's, it's sexy. It, it looks like you're building an athlete. It looks like you're constructing a performance. It looks like, you know, you're, you're integra integrally, you know, important to that performance. Right. If you're, you know, if you're training or weight training or, or developing a, you know, physiological training or something like that. So it is sexy. I understand that. Right. But you're still in a human service role. Right. It's the visible, tangible metrics yeah. that we can yep. see. So it's easy to grasp onto that. Whereas yep. the, the human service aspect and all of those intangibles are harder to measure, harder to see and harder to really say who does it well and what actually works. Um, less provable, I guess. Um, no, that makes complete sense. No, I like And that. I should, I should say, well, we'll finish off by saying that we're very lucky at Little Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia, that we still have a, a thriving sort of sport philosophy, sport ethics, sport sociology, sport history, sport psychology, group of academics who work alongside and often with our physiologists, our anatomists, our biomechanists, you know, so there is a good relationship at my home university, um, but I'm not sure it's shared at all universities. Yeah, I'd be interested. I'm not, I'm not a, a practicing, you know, whatever you want to call it in that, in that world. I'm not, I'm not deep into the weeds on, uh, American, no. American philosophy versus the the science part of it, but I'd be very interested to see and have conversations with individuals that are in it and see if they're experiencing the same kind of thing because that could be that could be a sign of issues to to happen down the road in the in the sports world. Uh, Luke, it would have been interesting to talk to Pam Sailors about that. I know you've already yeah. had a chat to Pam, but. I think she would have had a very interesting perspective of it. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that'll be maybe that'll be a phone call off the off yeah. the podcast because now you got me now you got me thinking. It's one of those questions that's going to be with me for the rest of the night. But um, yeah. yeah, I think I've I think I've eaten up enough of uh, enough of your morning, Mike. And I just want to say 
thank you so much again for, for coming on the show, making some time for, for me to have this conversation, if nothing else. It's been an absolute blast. And I can say after five episodes of the this philosophy of sports series, um, more more happy than ever that we that we're doing it. That that Ben kind of thrust this thrust this upon me, and I can't wait to do a few more. No, th- thanks for the opportunity, Luke. I've really appreciated. It's one of the things I love talking about. So you might have noticed. That. <laughs> yeah, and the the uh, the feeling is mutual. So thank okay, you. thank you once again. Okay, good luck, Luke, and I'll I'll no doubt hear from you soon, or not soon. In, in time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast with Luke Bullock. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the Captain's Coach Podcast.